heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. How do you feel about that right there? Calling him Lord. I'm going to talk about that. And you are children, and if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. Okay. So again, this is by far probably the most controversial chunk of this letter, right, that we've gone through. It wasn't controversial when he wrote it, not for the reasons that it is today, but it's a bear trap for us today, right? One gender submitting to another. <laughs> I mean, this would get Peter canceled today relatively quick, too. Gender roles is one of the more pivotal conversations that the church is having with society today, but the problem is, is the church doesn't really know what to say in this conversation, right? And it gets sticky, especially in moments like this, in passages like this where it says, wives, submit to your husbands. But this isn't a message to half the room. This isn't a sermon to just the women in the room. It's going to approach all of us for, for the same reason it's been approaching us the last few weeks, because it's asking us to submit. Submission, like we said, is an exercise of an exile. It's the exercise of letting go. Letting go of power, letting go of privilege, even at the cost of yourself for the benefit of others. That's been the theme of this whole letter. It's been the theme of this whole letter. And listen, let me just say this again, just so you hear me. This, this is why we preach through the Bible. Passages like this, right here, this is why we do it. If we cannot tackle hard passages like this, have them interpret who we are, look at Christ in the midst of a tough passage like that, and then walk in light of the truth that is, if we can't do it with passages like this, then I don't know why we bother. I don't know why we do this. I don't even know why we're here in that point. But you need to know your Bible is vibrantly alive and it is heavily invested in passages like this, in days like today. It's vibrant, it's alive, it's invested, it's thoughtful for you and me. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and active, living and active, okay? Sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's sharp because it's piercing, catch the verbiage here, it's piercing things that are hard to distinguish. I took anatomy uh, when I was in college. It's hard to distinguish where some things stop and where other things begin when you get down to the tissue level. But he says this, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, he says, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So yeah, you read the Bible, make no mistake, it reads you too. This Bible interprets us, and I just want you to remember that before you email me today or finally get around to using our text line to let me know how you do not like what I am saying, okay? I want you to remember that. We've definitely had pushback on this topic in the past. We've had people leave legacy because of this in the past. I'm open to discussing it with you after this. I'm open to the pushback. I just want you to remember these are not my words, right? I'm a mailman. I can, I can preach what God has given me to preach and upset some of you, or I could skip it and then upset the sender of the mail. Does that make sense? So we're going to go through this today, because if Peter were alive today, he'd say the exact same thing. Now, he'd be saying it to a different landscape, though, right? Times are different today. Peter wrote this to a church that was already familiar with this patriarchal shape to the marriage, 
This is something that was already in existence in the Greek and in the Roman world. So whenever he says, wives, submit to your own husbands, that wasn't near as provocative back then as it is today. Probably would have gotten a yawn a little bit. You see, the Romans and the Greeks, they considered an ordered society to begin in an ordered home. Patriarchy was already considered normal. Feminism did not exist. Feminism didn't exist in this ancient world of Peter. There were no hashtags, no women's marches, no glass ceilings to be broken. So what God does very thoughtfully through Peter in this moment is he redefines submission for his exiles. That's what we've been looking at for weeks now. And he's not saying, hey, ladies, get used to second chair because that's the way things are supposed to be. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, women, you have equal integrity Equal weight, glory, wisdom, knowledge, significance, influence, value, worth. You are equal. And yet you submit. Submit like Christ did. In the shape of Jesus. In the path of Jesus. Jesus trusted the Father as one equal to the Father. He submitted to the Father as one competent. As one who is equal to the Father. He submitted. See, it's not the word submit that made this passage so viral back then. It's the thought that women had equality to begin with. That they had the value to step down and to stoop down and to submit and to follow. That's what made this so viral. You see, our world today, our current society, has not handled the personhood of woman very well. It just hasn't. Classical feminism made its big debut in the early 70s. Some, some can trace it back to the late 60s. And, of course, men not acting like men just speeds it up. Your typical bro today is not looking for a bride to nurture, to elevate, but looking for a mom to raise them, to pick up where mom left off. Listen, if you're a guy today and you're bothered that feminism is so loud, remember that it's the passivity of men that built it. It's just as much Adam as it is Eve. It's important for us to know that. There's no such thing as a bitter, toxic, or unhealthy feminist in a world where men lead like Jesus leads. It doesn't exist. And since the early 70s, feminism has slow-dripped like an IV into the church. Now, when I say feminism, understand we're talking about a big, broad umbrella. There's a lot of different things that fit under this umbrella that we call feminism. Some of it, by the way, the church agrees with, Okay. There are things that the church says that feminism underlines and high fives. So when it comes to the destruction of pornography or it comes to equal pay or it comes to reinvesting the personhood of woman with value above just being an object, the church says it and feminism agrees. There, are, there is agreement. But also under this umbrella of feminism, there has been feminist theology that has done great damage, making passages like today more bad news than good news. I mean, be honest with yourself as you sit there or if you're watching online. As soon as I started reading this passage and when it says, wives, submit to your own husbands, you did not think in your mind, I love this text. This is such a Valentine's text. I'm so excited that Luke is telling me yet again. And when I say yet again, this will be the ninth time I've talked about this in the last two years. That's by design. That's because, as I said, this is a conversation the church is having with society. The church doesn't know how to use its words in this conversation, though. It's not doing a great job. Feminist theology will teach that this, what it's saying, that it's fallible. 
It's, it's, it's a book written by men for men, and all it does is defend the oppression and the exclusion of women. So you have to sift through it. You have to filter through it. You have to be suspicious when you read it because it's full of fallible words. That's what it will teach. Feminist theology will disagree, not with that man and woman are equal, but it will disagree that our roles and responsibilities are different. It will flatten those roles. It will flatten that, and it will say there's no deference of roles or responsibility. This is how Claire Smith says it. She's an academic that focuses on this for the church, and she says the central premise of feminist theology, that the church, the Bible, and even the God of the Bible are misogynistic and bad for women, has been accepted by many, if not most, of the people in the secular West. I agree with her. And listen, this is the culture we swim in. When I became a Christian, I had to unlearn what the personhood of woman was. I had to unlearn how I looked at roles, how I looked at gender. I had to unlearn how I'd known this thing called submission. I had views of it when I entered this thing called Christianity. I had to unlearn a lot of it. So although this is speaking to a very, very, very different people, it couldn't be more relevant than it is today. I mean, it's in the space of discussing gender roles. We can't even, as a society, decide if we should even have genders. So it's a conversation that's becoming more and more pivotal. But where this passage confronts all of us is in this exercise of letting go. Submission. To let go of your power and to let go of your privilege, which is what submitting is, whether we're doing it to a governor or a Caesar or an unjust master or to each other. But it's hard to let go. It's hard to let go of power. It's hard to let go of your felt rights. This is also why marriages feel strained. We chalk it up to communication. That's what I hear all the time. Well, the problem with our marriage is communication. I get it. I mean, communication, you're probably not great at it, but that's not really the problem, is it? The problem is is you're demanding power. You're demanding your rights in that moment. That's why it's difficult. We fight to have power over our spouse. We fail to lay our demands down. And yet the gospel comes in brilliantly reverses this power struggle because it shows us a picture of a king submitting his own life to the benefit of his bride, lays his life down. And who does he lay it down to? Broken people and a perfect father who he's equal to, right? I mean, hear me. She's not in here now because she's back with the kiddos. You can ask her. My wife submits to me and I submit to her. Both are true. Does that sound weird? That we submit to each other? She submits to me in such a way that she trusts and hopes in God, yet she follows me. Her hope is pinned on God. Her trust is pinned on the Lord, yet she follows me. And I submit my life by laying it down to preserve her above myself, to prefer her above myself. So it's mutual. We're equals in all ways, and we have differing roles. Differing roles. You can have difference in role and equality at the same time. I know people say you can't. Look at the Trinity. Is that not what the Trinity is? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Equivalent in weight and glory. Equal in weight and glory, yet they have a difference in role. And you can pick up on that, right? The Father sends the Son. The Son lives to please the Father. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, but then Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to us. You see, this dance and this interaction based around responsibility and role, but they're equal. 
It's, it's the same way we pastor our church, by the way. We have three active pastors now, about to on-ramp our fourth. We've got five more we're talking to right now. We're having this process. Now. But li- listen, when they sit at the table, Luke doesn't have two votes. There's an equality there, but there is, there is a difference in role. I'm focused on things that are different than what the other men in the room are focused on. You can have equality in difference in role and responsibility. You can. This is how Paul says it. Paul says it a little bit differently than Peter, but then again, Paul says everything a little bit different than Peter, right? So in Ephesians 5, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything and their husbands. <laughs> this is crazy, right? Now two people have said it. This is not arguing for patriarchy. It's arguing for martyrdom. Men, that we lay our lives down. I'm not looking for power over my wife, but to lift her, to elevate her at my cost. At my cost, to prefer her over myself. I'm not looking to dominate her, but to subjugate my felt demands to prefer her. Do you see how submitting does not mean you're inferior? It means letting go of power and demanded privilege. It doesn't mean you're inferior. And it means doing this so that Jesus is clearly seen. But what Peter does is he amplifies it. He grabs the knob on the dial and he starts to pull it to where it becomes more of an agitation to a culture and a society like we're in today. And he says this, submit to your your own husbands. And when he says your own husbands, that's a totally different sermon I'd love to preach someday, right? But he says, do it even if they don't love Jesus. Do it even if they don't love you like Jesus would love you. Submit to them even if they don't handle you like Jesus would. Why would Peter say this? It seems so unfair. Honest, honestly, it feels unfair. One-sided, right? Unjust. That he would ask a woman to submit to a guy who does not behave like Jesus. Who does not do a great job. Who does not honor her even like Jesus. It seems cruel. And friends, listen, I've heard countless women, wives over the last 20 years, Talk about how submission would be so much easier if the guy was so much more of a leader, if he was less of a moron, more competent, more mature, right? Maybe someone like Abraham, which is why I think Peter throws Abraham in here as a little bit of an example. says this in verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. All that, all that means is that she was respectful in how she, how she spoke to him, right? She wasn't mocking. She didn't dress him down in public. She, she was respectful. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that she, I mean, she might have called him Lord. I don't know. But that's not saying that that's what we do today. Sometimes I'll walk around the house, sometimes I'll walk around the house and I'll say, I think you guys need to call me reverend for the rest of the day. Everyone calls me reverend, you know, just to be funny and a joke and everything. But that's not what he's doing right here. No one called anyone Lord, right? This is a sign of respect. But here's the thing. For a woman to say, if I had a real man, someone like Abraham, submission would be a lot easier. Peter's showing, no. Abraham was a moron a lot of times. When it comes to bad decisions, that guy's in the Hall of Fame. Just read through Genesis. If if you ever read through Genesis and you're like, God, I I don't know the, the Hebrew behind this, but it seems like Abraham just made a misstep. 
there's no, there's no alternative Hebrew explanation for that. He made a misstep. That was a big boo-boo. Bad mistake. But Sarah didn't hope in Abraham. She didn't trust in Abraham. She followed him. Her hope and her trust were in the Lord. But she submitted to her man. It's easier said than done. But, I mean, if you've seen anything in the last three weeks, the idea of submission is that we're submitting to people who are failed. If, if, as we submit to each other in the spiritual house as living stones, we, we understand we're submitting to people who are failed. When we submit to the governors and the Caesars and every human institution, he says, we understand that those people are failed too, that they're not perfect. That the masters who lord things over us and have control of the moment, when we submit to the injustice, the injustice, that we know that they are failed people. It's going to be the same theme for you and me. And why can we do this? Because we are not ultimately at the mercy of man or moment. We trust in the Lord. Here's a caveat here, and I think it's probably important to say this. This does not mean submitting by remaining in an environment where you're physically abused. Again, this isn't something that anyone ever wants to preach, but it is not Christ-like. God nowhere ushers women, leads women to stay in abusive, physically abusive situations. In, in fact, it would be wrong to live in an environment and in a situation that encultures and invites continual sin repeatedly, putting yourself in that danger. So if you're being physically dominated, there's no expectation that you live in that garbage. Not by the Bible's cue anyway. And these are difficult scenarios. It's, it's impossible to address them all specifically because they're nuanced and they all have details within them. But if, listen, if this is a question you have, you need to reach out for help. If you feel like you're in, a, in, a, in an environment, in a relationship where there's physical domination, you need to call us. We'll put a number up on the screen. It will say Sexual Assault Center of East Tennessee, but they also handle domestic abuse. You need to call that number. Call us. Let us help. Let us partner with you in that. But even if we were to zoom away from this a little bit and not talk about physical domination, if your man dominates you emotionally by hiding behind this passage just so they could keep their power and get their say, you need to know that that is also not how Jesus imaged his power. That is also not how he used his power. Christ served with his life and then he laid his life down. That's what we see. That's what we see. And this is what we as husbands are called to do today. One of the first quotes I ever learned from C.S. Lewis as a young man about to get married was the crown a man wears in his marriage is first a crown of thorns. Now practically this is what it looks like for me and Paula. I use the leadership role that God has given me to serve her. No, she does not call me Lord. If she does, she's cracking a joke and mocking me in the moment, right? We're just playing back and forth. But as the leader and nurturer of our family... This means I should be the fastest and the first to let go of my demands. I should be the quickest to put them down. The quickest to lay down my demands. This is the opposite of saying, you will submit to me. It's the opposite of that. Men, if you're doing this, you're not getting what you want, by the way. She's losing respect for you by the minute every time you do that. You're not doing that in the shape of Christ. You're not imaging the gospel. You're demanding things. Practically, I want her preferences to rise above mine, and I want my demands to subside because that's what it means for me to lay my life down, to submit to her, to serve her. We were talking about this this morning. 
and she'd forgotten a lot of this because it happened in our first year of marriage. But we bought a house. Listen, I graduated from college. I went into the ministry, got married, and bought a house all in, all in three weeks, the same three weeks. So it was a pretty a lot going on. <laughs> so we bought this house. If you know my wife, she's an artist, so a house is as much of a canvas to her as it is a place to live and a home. So she finally got this house just like she wanted it. It was beautiful. We took all the money that we had. We were so poor. We took all the money we had from our wedding gifts and my graduation gifts, and we put it down on a meager down payment and slipped into this house. And, man, she loved it. It was this beautiful home. And then I felt the Lord call us away to Los Angeles so that I could go to school to learn how to do this thing called ministry. I was going to seminary. I was going to take my Texas wife to Los Angeles. And that went about as well as you could think. She struggled with that. I said, I really feel like this is what the Lord is calling us to do. She said, but here are the ten reasons I have that we should not make a move like that. And they were all good reasons. Stacked on top of that, I don't want to go to Los Angeles. I don't want to go there. I like it here in West Texas. I like it in our home. And you're asking me to just leave it all. She came back a day later. And she says, I'll let you decide. I'll trust God. And it wasn't one of those, I'll, tr- I'll trust God, and I'm going to roll my eyes and mock you every time there's, I'm going to let you know that this was hard for me every single day. It was a true submission. Wives, listen, this doesn't mean that you don't offer your opinion. Even strongly offer your opinion. It doesn't mean that you don't offer your counsel and your wisdom. Listen, your husbands need it. They don't know what they're doing. We don't know what we're doing. We're guessing. We need you to help us see what we can't see. So it's not saying being silent. Peter is simply submitting, along with Paul, by the way, that our attitude is formatted by a trust in God, not a demand for our rights and our power. And ladies, you can carry yourself and defer this leadership in this beautiful way that will showcase the gospel, which is what Peter's talking about. Where Christ himself, who is equal to the Father, imperfect and competent in every way, subjected himself. He submitted himself both to God's plan, which was beautiful, and then to our hands. Just broken animals, villains, bitter people. He submitted to both. Because if you can't see the gospel framework in submission, if you can't see that, then submission is only a good idea as much as your man is impressive. Right? But then it's not submission. It's just agreement. If you're just agreeing with your husband or submitting whenever it's easy to submit, that's agreement. That's not submission. Submission assumes that there is going to be a contrast in how you feel about the situation and how he feels about the situation. And then he gets even more difficult. Then Peter takes the same dial and he cranks it even more. And he says, even if they don't love Jesus... This is evangelism by marriage. Have you caught that? Not the easiest evangelism in the world. He says this in verse 1 and 2. He says, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Listen, I know this happens. I've known this to happen a bunch. I know wives in the past who have struggled through this. I know this in wives now who are struggling with this. They have a husband who is far from the Lord. They have a husband that's not listening. They have a husband that's not interested. And yet they, they love Jesus. Let me just, if you're watching, if you're here, listen. Hope and trust in God. Hope and trust in God. Nothing escapes his attention. 
who God hunts, he catches. He catches. Keep praying. Keep praying. He probably won't listen to Jesus and my sermons, but he'll see Jesus in your life if you carry yourself, that hidden person in you. The endurance you're going to need for this is daunting, and yet God has given you a grace for this endurance, and he will give you a grace for this endurance. So trust in his sufficiency to give you what you need. And let me just encourage you with this. Heaven will be full of men who trusted in the gospel because of the way wives handled themselves. You need to know that. Heaven will be full of men who will be able to say, I am here because I trusted and put my faith in a gospel story because of how my wife lived her life. That's why he says it's not your appearance that will melt a heart, but the hidden person. The hidden person says this in verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Okay, what does this mean? What is he saying right here? He's saying your superpower as a wife is not in how you look. It's not in how you appear visually, but it's in the hidden character. In fact, this could extend well beyond wives, just any woman, right? As you hope in God, you look like Jesus, and that is beautiful to God, and it is beautiful to man. It's beautiful. But I know the struggle in this, the struggle is that you grew up, if you're a young woman, you grew up believing that outward appearance is valued more than hidden character. Now, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying to avoid making yourself look beautiful. I've seen denominations or churches take that and run with it in the wrong direction, out of context, and it's just weird. That's not what he's saying right He's not saying don't braid your hair or put jewelry on. I mean, it doesn't even make any sense. He's not saying that. He's saying the substance of your life is not outward appearance. That's what he's saying. That your outward appearance can't be what yields power and significance to you. But at a young age, women are taught that their significance and their power come from how they look. That's how our culture shills it out. That's what we pick up over time. It's really relatively effortless how we pick that up too. That if you're attractive, you can get what you want in this world. That's power. If you're attractive, you can get everything you want. That's significance. And certainly there is a worth and a value that can be found just for a fleeting second, right? You take a picture of yourself. You post it after you use a filter, of course, right? F- filters are to what makeup is for pictures, right? So we put a filter on because it erases our imperfections. Filters erase those things. And it does feel good for a second when people just click a button or tell you how beautiful you are. But what you're trying to fill ultimately, if that's what you're after, is a cosmic hole. It's much bigger than a social media app can give you. You're hungry for significance, and therefore you're perfect for the gospel, You're perfect for the good news of the gospel. The gospel is the story of God gifting significance to insignificant people. It's a story of bringing beauty to people who are inwardly already ugly. The story is of adorning villains with all the spiritual treasures in the heavenlies. You see, Jesus, what he did is he submitted himself to serve us to death. Submission is no longer a word that needs to be canceled or removed. The very word submission is one of the fulcrums on which the gospel sits. 
If you were to take the beautiful story of the gospel with all of its beautiful words and all of its accuracies and you were to pull the word submission out of it, it is no longer a good story. It's no longer good for you. You can't be sustained by it. You can't be saved by it. Because then it becomes a story of being compelled to the cross. He was forced to the cross. He was made to go to the cross. And that's not good news. That's that's a story of child abuse. But he submitted. As an equal to God, he submitted. Both to God's beautiful plan. And then he submitted to our hands. And the worst we could throw at him. The worst. And we know even from the Bible that his beauty was not in his appearance. He didn't try to gain significance or power based on what the world felt like was valuable at the time. He says this in Isaiah 53 too. This is what the Lord says to the prophet Isaiah, pointing 700 years later to who would be Jesus. He says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So Isaiah says Jesus was nothing to look at. You'd miss him in a crowd. You couldn't pick him out, right? And he didn't grasp for the attention and the power and the privilege that the world responds to so quickly. He laid it down so that he could serve the ungrateful. And I want you to just consider for a moment that the man who wrote this letter, Peter, the man who wrote this letter had his feet washed by Jesus, a superior, very God and very man. He puts a towel on to serve. He stoops. He submits to God's plan and to the worst we could give. He does both. And he only quits serving by washing feet long enough to crawl up on a cross and serve us by washing our souls. Not with tears or sweat, but with his own blood. He served us to death. He submitted to the Father's plan as an equal. And he submitted to the worst we could throw at him. Not only is this a model for wives and husbands, but it frees us and brings freedom for us to walk in the same way. We submit to each other as wives and husbands. We bend our superpowers, not to elevate ourselves, but to elevate each other. That's the marital dynamic that will yield a healthy marriage. That's what will build a vibrant, nurturing, growing, Christ-imaged, gospel-framed marriage is laying our demands down. Listen, it's not just a book away. A book or a 16-week course, that is not what you need most right now. We could teach a course. Listen, we could spend 20 weeks on it. We could spend 100 weeks on how not to stink at your marriage. I could be the, I could be the authority on it. I could, I could write a, a volume of books. What we need most, what will carve out the most dysfunction from your marriage today is laying your demands down. That'll get rid of about nine out of ten fights right there. The tenth fight's just something stupid you probably didn't need to fight over anyway, right? To lay our demands down. So there's a lot of room for all of us to repent in this. Not just just wives. All of us. To turn from this tight grip on power and this reluctance to let it go. I think we also need to repent from believing in our culture's pathetic definition of what submission is, of what roles are, of what gender is. I think it ushers us to repent, to turn from relying on outward appearance, what the world values for us to find power in this world. And listen, if you're, if you're here or you're watching and you're just not a big fan of Jesus, maybe you're far from Jesus, maybe you're trying to figure out 
who Jesus is to you? Listen, submitting to your spouse, that's going to be impossible without first submitting to the Lord. You can't have one without the other. You'll never have a good marriage unless you're fully submitted to the Lord. And without God to trust and hope in, you only have your spouse left. Can we all agree that as good of a husband or a wife as we could be, we'll make a poor Jesus. We're not worthy of the trust and the hope of our spouse. I want my wife to trust Jesus and hope in Jesus far more than me. And the best husband I can be is a version of me where I love God more than I love my wife. When we pin our trust and our hope in God, it will allow us to serve each other. So submit to God because your quest for power is never going to be quenched. The story of the gospel is that God is glorious. So we don't have any need to be glorious and demand our rights and our power. He's in control. He is super powerful, so we don't have to be. We don't have to be. We're free to disappear. You're free to submit. You're free to serve. No longer have to feast on the power and the privilege of this world. Go ahead and stand with me, and we're going to take communion together as a people. On this Valentine's Day. <laughs> and if, can somebody go back and grab the elements if we have them? I actually need, I need one myself. He brings it in. Hey, Caleb, I need one of those as well. And just listen, just as we take communion, I want you to do so with a heart of response. Meaning that this is more than just a ritual. It's more than a mechanical thing that we do every week. This is the moment where you walk and you answer what you just heard. Right? In the word of God. As we read the passages, as we looked at what the passages said, it's asking from something for you. It's asking for something from you. It's asking you to respond a certain way. Thank you. It's asking you to evaluate your life. It's asking you to repent. It's asking you to be encouraged. It's asking for you to look to the cross. Passages like this demand that we look at the cross and the good news or we won't even understand it. And listen, in one day, the bride and groom will be together again. The church and her suitor. The church will be adorned in perfect white and beautiful and fully satisfied. And our groom, Christ, who submitted his life, will be radiant and his glory will replace the sun. That day is coming. We don't know when it's going to be, but it's coming. Until then... We image this with our marriages. Until that moment, we show what that gospel looks like by how we lay our demands down for each other. So as we take this bread, we're going to do so in remembrance of what kind of a groom Jesus was. How noble, how nobly he served us by putting his life down. He says, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. And he served himself to death for you and for me. So Father, as we think about your gospel and as we think about these harsh words to our culture today but these beautiful words that show us how your gospel works Lord we do so in remembrance of how good you are to us so we take this bread remembering how you broke yourself as the ultimate groom And Lord, as we take this juice, we do so knowing that it's emblematic of the blood that you let out for us. And Lord, I know that there's going to be struggle. 
there's going to be struggle in this room or whoever's watching. There's going to be struggle over this passage anyway. And Lord, I just pray that you would reinforce by the power of your Holy Spirit that our best life is a life of experiencing an exile's existence of letting go. We let go of our felt demands and our power and our privilege, our rights. We let them go. And we trust you. We trust you. And so, Lord, as we take this juice, we do so in remembrance of the blood that was spilled from one who shows us what it looks like to let go. So we take this in remembrance of you. And Father, I just feel a need to pray maybe a special different prayer. Not just for the wives that we might know and, and all the relationships that we have in this room, but the wives even in this city those who are married to men who just do not love you. Lord, that you would give them endurance and joy and confidence that you go before them, that you are in control, that you are thoughtful and that you are loving and that you don't miss. And Lord, I pray for the wives in this city and especially this church. Father, that you would help our hearts. It's, it's, it's different for me as a man to preach a passage like this. I know how hard it is to hear. Lord, that you would work on hearts and show the freedom to let go of power and privilege and to put all of our trust in you to reinforce in our hearts that we're not at the mercy of man and we're not at the mercy of moment. But we can hope and trust in you and then we are free to follow failed people. So Lord, we love you and we thank you and you are so very good to us and we worship you in this moment asking for you and your Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts to truly embrace a passage like this. And it's your name we pray, amen.